We are talking about prayer and establishing a prayer life. Today I want to talk about an aspect that's a little uncomfortable. It's the silence of God. And my message today is when God goes silent. We find ourselves in the Gospel of John today. If you could flip there. John 11. John 11, we'll kind of walk through the entire chapter throughout the course of this message. Silence. (laughs) We crave this sometimes, don't we? Like, it's like when you have a hectic week or a boss barking down your, your neck all week long. It's like, man, I just need, like, my space. I just need some quiet right now, and we crave silence. If you have young kids in the home, we're always asking questions, and they're never tired of asking the same questions. You're like, I just need a breather for a second. We crave silence when our to-do list is ever-growing and seemingly never-shrinking. We just want some silence. Crave it. But there are other times where we dread silence. Have you ever stood in an elevator? And like, it shouldn't be uncomfortable because you're strangers with the people there. But like everybody either does one of two things. You look down at your feet or you look up at the number, right? And it's just like silent. And like you feel a little awkward there for some reason. I don't know why, but we do, right? And we just feel compelled to look at the number. And we just kind of stare there and we rarely ever think about having a conversation with a person in an elevator. But silence in that moment is maybe something that we dread. When you've sent an important text message to a person and you're like waiting for the reply, it's like, oh, it's like silence in the texting airways there. It's like, wow, it feels a little uncomfortable as you're waiting for it. And if you have that little function where the, you see where, when they're typing and it gives a little dot, 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 like, oh, yes, it's not silent, it's kind of feeling something, and we anticipate the communication, and we dread the silence there. When you're on a first date, have you ever been on that first date? Remember that first date with somebody, all right? And uh, you're in this dinner setting or wherever you are, and you're talking about some small talk, and then all of a sudden you st- you have no more things to talk about that are in the realm of small talk, and you're groping in your mind, what can I talk about? Because you want to break that silence, that silence. Okay? And so silence is something that we crave in moments, but also something that we dread in others. And today I want to talk about the silence of God. And I think more often than not, when in the realm of our faith or relationship with God, we, we don't like it. It's something that we're a little uncomfortable with. And if I could say that when we think about the silence of God, it's a very frustrating and lonely time. I think it's exacerbated because you can't physically see God or Jesus next to you. It's one thing to know that the person is present and not speaking, but another to say, you know what, at this time I'm just frustrated and struggling with if you're really active in my life. If you really want to say anything to me. I need you now more than ever, but why do I feel so far away? 
When I need to hear your voice louder and clearer, why is it being drowned out by so many other things? I don't want to hear the other inputs. I want to take the volume down on those things and I want to knob it up for you, but why can I not hear? It's a very frustrating time. It's a very lonely season. If you can recollect the time where you wanted to hear God the most and you felt as though you heard Him the least, how did you feel? I've prayed about it. I've asked in faith. I've sincerely wanted an answer. But despite all of that, it seems to be blank. Nothing. This is where we find ourselves in John 11. If you can find yourself here in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick. Okay? Think about when you're sick and multiply that to the point of death. Okay? Being sick to the point of death. Terminally ill. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, and it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And if you think about verse 2, it's really establishing a context. It's really painting a very vivid picture for you. And what verse 2 is saying is they had a close relationship. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were close with Jesus. They were of an inner circle, so to speak. Okay? They were on a first-name basis. They didn't feel uncomfortable with calling each other in the middle of the night. They knew it would be uncomfortable, but they knew it wouldn't totally impose. And so this, the Mary, who wiped and anointed the feet of Jesus, that is whose brother was sick. And so John is painting a very intimate picture. This family was close to Jesus. Okay? It's painting that picture. We've got to set that in our minds. They're a, a close bunch. And so the sisters, therefore, because they were close, because they knew each other, because Jesus, when he was in Bethany, stayed there, because Mary was a worshiper, the sisters therefore sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Again, setting the stage here. It's painting a very vivid picture. Martha, uh, Martha and Mary, as they send the word out to Jesus, their brother is about to die. They know Jesus can heal him because they've witnessed his miracles throughout these years. And they know without a shadow of a doubt, if anybody needs to be by Lazarus' side, it's Jesus. And so when, Jesus, when Lazarus is sick, they send word out. And the word is not just Lazarus is sick. The word is the one who you love. It's really buttering it up. It's painting a very dramatic picture. It is basically saying you love him and you need to make haste. You need to get here quickly. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. This, up until verse 6, makes no relational sense. Zero. If you were in this picture, if you were to transpose yourself and be one of the individuals here, and one through six played out like this, you would be up in arms. If you were Mary, if you were Martha, if you were Lazarus, if you were a relative or a friend in Bethany, you would have a problem with this. When I was dating Jenny, this is probably somewhat in the beginning, the first couple of months, one of the things that she realized about me is I get sick really bad about once a year. <laughs> I don't know what it is. All right? Maybe my, I got a weaker immune system. I don't know what it is. But I usually get sick pretty bad once a year. And when we first started dating back in 2004, I got really, I was living uh, by myself. Actually, I had a uh, youth student that I had taken with me and, and, and brought in. And he lived with me because he didn't have a place to stay at the time. But I remember living in this apartment in Buena Park, and at that time, Jenny, she was living in Cerritos. Uh, we were dating, and I had fallen sick. I believe it was the fall of 2004. And as we were dating and progressing in our relationship, we were getting engaged, right? And when I had fallen sick, it was late at night, and I remember her. I mean, I, I'm by myself now. She brought a very, very thick comforter, a blanket, to the apartment with some other stuff. And I remember when she brought that, how thankful. When a person is very sick and weak, it's like someone throws you a bone and you're like ah, salivating over that because it feels really good to get affection and shown concern when you were at a weak point because you're desperate. And if you get that from a stranger, you feel nice. But if you get that from someone you love, all the more. And I remember she would tell me at, later on after we got married, actually my father-in-law would uh, actually gave her a hard time that evening, basically saying, you're not even married. Why are you going over to his house or the apartment at this time in the, in the, in the, in the, in the evening? And, uh, but it just showed something for, from her. But what I want to bring to you is the perspective from me, the recipient of the person who was sick in that moment. What that meant to me, I still remember that. I'm sweating profusely, having chills, and someone is able to care and drive and go across town and bring this to me. This is a very mild example to Mary and Martha and where Lazarus was. We're talking about standing by the bedside of a brother who was about to die. And there is actually a remedy for this. Because Mary and Martha knew clearly Jesus was a healer. And so, brother, you're sick. This is a desperate situation. There was only one person that needs to come here, and that's Jesus. And so they immediately send word, and word gets to him. And what he does confuses everybody. The disciples, everybody. He stays there a couple of days longer. He chooses not to go immediately. Normally, if you get a call from a loved one, they're about to die. They're in the hospital. 
You drop what you're doing. You tell your boss, I need to get out of the office. You drop everything and you make a beeline to that space, to that place, wherever they are. Because you love them and you have no idea how much time is left. We're not talking about days. When someone is terminally sick, you're talking about not hours, but minutes. Minutes. That every moment is precious because every moment is fleeting. I remember when I got the phone call from my mom that early morning telling me that my father was in a really bad state. I bought a plane ticket that hour and I got on a plane. Because I have no idea when the last moment will be. And if anything, if I can't save him, I at least want to be by the bed when he passes. Because I love my dad. And it's setting the stage that Jesus and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had a special relationship. We're talking about they were chummy with each other. They really knew each other, trusted each other. And that's the picture that is painted for us. And when the word gets to Jesus, Lazarus, you love the guy, he's falling sick, get here quickly. Let me just hang tight for a little bit. It's not the time. Makes no relational sense. And that silence, as I can think about it, was unbearable. If I was Mary or Martha in this house, Lazarus just lying there probably on a bed, relatives, friends in the town, they're filling this house because they all see it. They know. It's about time. And in these moments, for Mary and Martha, regardless of how many dozens of people filled their home, I can imagine they were looking at the door, waiting for one. And that silence of Jesus not walking through that door was unbearable. When you need Him the most, when you need Him the most, Why is there silence? The story progresses. And Jesus finally makes his way to Bethany. And word travels fast. Jesus was a person you talked about in that day. He he shook some, some airwaves. And when he was going, there was a ripple effect going forward. It went forward. Wherever he was going to, that town heard about it before he got there. And so Jesus makes his way, and the word is traveling in front of him, and it gets to Bethany. The sisters hear about it. Martha goes out. Before he even gets into the gate of the city, she goes out and meets him. And both sisters, when they meet him, have very choice words for Jesus. Basically, where were you? Lazarus is dead, and he wouldn't be if you were here. They're basically saying, it's your fault that he's dead. Let's pick up our reading here. 
Verse 17 of chapter 11. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already, speaking of Lazarus, been in a tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary still sat in the house. Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You've got to let that sit for a second. In here is not just complaining. In here is loneliness, frustration, hurt, despondency. If you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked. And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. You see what she's stressing here? I, believe, I know this about you. That's why we were calling for you, because I know you're the Christ. I know you're God's Son. You can make a difference. I have known this. There is raw emotion here as she's talking. In verse 28, And when she had said this, she went away called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and was coming to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Mary had met him. And the Jews then, who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and he fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews weep, uh, who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. You see the emotion here again. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. One of the most profound verses in Scripture, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. You see, Jesus is walking the journey with us day by day. He's not just waiting on the finish line with us. And it goes on, verse 36. And so the Jews were saying, Behold, how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. And I knew that you heard me always, 
but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you did send me. And when he had said these things, he cried out. We're not talking about a passive little faint voice. He shouted, he cried with tears in his eyes, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him. You've got to get in this passage. But what I know is that this is not a unique occurrence. The incident of Mary and Martha with a sick brother Lazarus and Jesus delaying in another town before coming after receiving word is a unique experience. But the experience of us needing Jesus to show up and feeling as though he didn't is not. Each and every one of us in our lives, in our journey of faith, have experienced this. We've been sitting in a chair, lying on a bed, driving in a car, sitting in our offices, waiting for Jesus to say something that we needed Him to say, show up in a way that we wanted Him to show up, knowing He is the answer. That's why we prayed. That's why we asked for deliverance, because we know Jesus can do it. And we've all been in the space where we're waiting, looking at the door. And all the wrong people are walking through it. Yeah, it's nice that they came, but I'm actually waiting for somebody else. And we felt this. We've sat in that lonely room that was crowded. And there was only silence where we expected something else. On your sermon note cards, I threw a curveball, right? <laughs> I just put dot, dot, dot. <laughs> it's like, how does it feel to see nothing where you expected words to be? Like, it's like, what is this? This is odd, right? But that's exactly it. Silence when you expect words. Jesus ultimately shares the two reasons for his silence. He says, number one, I want your faith to grow. And number two, I want God's glory to be displayed. Those are the two reasons of why Jesus stayed silent. Our faith to grow and God's glory to be displayed. That these were the end results, the motivations for his silence. And how he accomplished the growing of faith and the displaying of God's glory was by the flipping of their paradigm. What was that? Everybody wanted a healing and Jesus wanted to give a resurrection. 
We're talking about a, a flip here. Everybody knows Jesus can heal him. Didn't you open the eyes of that blind guy? Can't you have kept this person from dying was the rhetoric of the day, of the moment. And so everybody was expecting a healing, and Jesus is saying, wait a minute, I want your faith to grow, and I want you to give greater glory to God. And how I will accomplish that is by changing what you expect. Flipping your paradigm, not giving you the healing you want, but giving you the resurrection you never expected. And the breaking of the silence accomplished this. Shattering of a smaller childlike paradigm and graduating them into a more mature one. Silence sets the stage for this, doesn't it? Last year when I was going through what I think was my own mild midlife crisis, it set the stage for me, honestly, that this past summer was set that my revelation of God, when He spoke to me, it was actually a breaking of the silence because I felt as though I was completely lost. I had all of the chatter around me, but the one voice that I was craving had gone silent. There was just a a, a flat line. And I was yearning for that. But it was the presence of silence that set the stage for a greater revelation in my life. And that's what silence does. So I ask the question of you. When were your silent moments Is it now? Don't give up. Are you sitting in that room, frustrated and lonely, but you're surrounded by people? I want to share a quote that was forwarded to me by one of our brother's hands a few weeks ago when we started this discussion on establishing a prayer life and how I'd mentioned that prayer is active, you actively engage, you actively speak, you actively listen and reflect. He forwarded me a passage about the silence of God and this message kind of came out of that little texting back and forth. Timothy Clinton and a gentleman by the name of George, I'm going to mangle this, Allschlager, in their book, Competent Christian Counseling, say this, Sometimes God is silent, but He never intends that He not be heard. In every relationship, remember that you cannot not communicate. Silence always sends a message that God wants us to learn from. Silence from God is often a challenge to build and grow one's faith in Him. Faith and trust are not engaged when we are always in contact with someone. It must be exercised when our beloved is distant. And so we speak a lot of ourselves to other people through our words, but we also speak to them through our disengagement, through our silence. And God, even when He is silent, is saying something to His beloved, to His children. 
Are you in a season where the words are flowing, or are you in a season when the words are like a drought? Regardless of the season, he's speaking. He's saying something. The silence of God is something never to be shunned, but always to be reflected upon. God is speaking, even when he is silent. And so I turn the final corner of this message as praise team, you come back. Let me leave you with two very important application points. And the first is this. When you can't hear or feel God, trust in His promises and in His character. Okay? And I, I try to point that out with a visual here. When you can't hear and feel God, what I'm saying is you don't feel the rain coming from the top. It's very dry. The leaves are barren. My branches are, are just yearning. It's like licking for water. Where is the water? Where is the moisture? I need life, and it seems so dry. I can't hear Him. I can't feel Him. When it is dry from the top, I want you to dig deep and know that His promises and His character, that there is something deeper down under the surface that does not go away. I want you to, to grab the nutrients through your roots, not from the topsoil. And know that even when the, ver, the, the words are vacant, quiet, not there, I want you to dig deep and think about what He's promised, who He is. And as you latch on to the faithfulness of God, know that that season of dryness will pass. Rains will come again. But the vitality and strength of your tree was not dependent upon top rain, but upon the reservoirs underneath of who God is and of what He's promised you. That's the first thing. The second is this. I want you to believe and know that God cares. He cares. He cares. That He is concerned that he has heard, that he knows. But Mary and Martha knew this. Everybody in the town knew this. I want you to know that God really cares. This really will stretch you in the driest of seasons. In my mind, I know God cares. But when my mind doesn't understand, it's going to be hard to latch on to this. And you've got to dig deep to know that He really cares for you. And so if you're in a dry time, in a silent season, just know. He truly, deeply, and really cares. I hope that will sit well with you in your heart tonight. And that in this season, you know that Jesus is coming. If he's not giving you the healing you expect, don't worry. He's got an ace in his back pocket. He's got abilities that are beyond our comprehension. And he can give us a resurrection we don't even expect. May that, may that dwell with you today. Amen? Amen.